Good morning. Welcome again today. First Peter chapter 1, if you'll find that place in your Bible, we'll be there in just a moment. Well, Josh mentioned a moment ago that uh, this Wednesday evening is our member information meeting. I do want to let you know it's a bit different, okay? First of all, it's different because it's going to start at 6 o'clock, not at 6.30, so make sure you take note of that. But also because we're beginning what we call an annual report here at Grace, a little more of an extended uh, presentation at the member meeting this coming Wednesday. We're going to recap 2022. We're going to talk about uh, stewardship opportunities for 2023. And what we hope to do is increase the awareness and the engagement of our members here at Grace. So please join us this Wednesday. Now, another thing I want to say as we're getting into the passage is that uh, today there are two beginnings. Today is the beginning of our 31st year of ministry as a congregation here at Grace Community Church. And, well, yeah, you can clap. Sounds like, about, sounds like about 20 of you are happy with that. You never know. Do, you, do we clap? Do we not clap? And so, thank you. Uh, more to come on that. We are going to gather in March for a night of singing and testimonies. We'll, we'll say that. But today's the day. It's also the beginning of a series of messages in a New Testament letter that goes by the title First Peter. First Peter because Peter wrote two of them, and this is the first one. It's going to become more and more clear, more and more apparent over the months ahead as to why Peter's letter to the churches in the first century in an area of the world that we now know as Turkey this letter is for us. It will become more and more apparent in the weeks and months to come. We'll all say, oh, that's why God gave this. This is for us. This is for Christians, for congregations in the 21st century in Nashville, greater Nashville, America. This is for us. First Peter, like the whole Bible, is timeless because the Christian experience and call to faithfulness to Christ is universal. And the ministry of a local congregation like Grace Community Church, which is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, that's straight out of 1 Peter, is still the way that God is calling other people to faith in Christ. 1 Peter is for us. It is one of 66 books in the Bible that God has so graciously given to us. And maybe I should parenthesis right there and say, many people are coming to grace. You may be here today, and this is a bit new to you. We've had people come over the last few weeks who have never been a part of this before. And we welcome you, and we're going to try to help and say things along the way that help you get oriented. And so... I just said there are 66 of these wonderful books made up in one big Bible. This is one of them. It's a letter. It's called 1 Peter. Now, there are some major themes in 1 Peter. He talks about a great salvation by God's grace. And with that comes the call to live a holy life as God is holy. But we're living 
saved and holy lives as strangers, as sojourners in this world, even experiencing some of the sufferings uh, for Christ's sake, but living nonetheless in a holiness in everyday relationships. Peter talks about that. And holiness as a congregation in our congregational life. All looking toward a final future of glory as we await the appearing of Christ. And so with all of that, we wait faithfully. So themes, salvation, holiness, sojourning, declaring, suffering, faithfulness, future glory. We're going to touch on all of these things in the months to come. We begin today with the beginning, and it is the greeting, and we'll see just how much can be extracted from a little greeting in a letter. Stand with me in honor of God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. You have no idea what it feels like to start preaching through a new book of the Bible. <laughs> I have so many thoughts and then I rethink it. How do I jump in? It's daunting. And sometime around Saturday morning, early, I say, Scott, you've got to stop thinking about it and you just got to jump in. And so here we are. You can see from the greetings of the New Testament, of this New Testament letter, that it's a bit more than, hey guys, it's me, Peter. Hope you're well. The greeting identifies the people involved. It's certainly identifying their situation, their real regions that are listed here. But the greeting identifies these people and everyone involved in theological terms. In fact, greetings in New Testament letters actually become a part of basic Christian teaching for the church. We'll see that today. And that's why I can preach a whole sermon on just the greeting and not rush through it because there's not a wasted word in these letters, not one wasted word in the Bible. All of it brings to us both truth and encouragement. And as we see at the end of this greeting, grace and peace as Christians. So today, just the greeting. We're gonna identify everyone involved, Peter, the elect exiles, and God. And then we'll see that God gives us the gifts of grace and peace as we live in this world 
And then we'll close with the way God communicates it to us. So first, just some identifications. He starts with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, he is Simon Peter. He's Simon the son of John, who Jesus then named Peter, which means rock. We read about that a long time ago in John chapter 1, do you remember? Obviously, this man named Simon, when he came to Christ and Christ renamed him Peter, liked the name Peter, rock, because it was given to him by his Savior and his Lord. And so he simply says, Peter, simply. He doesn't embellish his name. He adds apostle, but he's content with just receiving the name that Jesus gave him, something that we can learn from. Now, Peter was an early disciple of Jesus, but he was also designated as an apostle because there were many disciples. Lots of people followed Jesus and were called disciples. We think of the 12, but there were many more than that. But certain disciples were appointed by Jesus as apostles. And the apostles filled a unique and limited office and role in the church. First of all, they were unique from all the other disciples and are still unique from all the followers of Christ today because they were uniquely taught by Christ and by the Spirit. They uniquely received the revelation of the truth of God because Jesus was preparing them to write it down so that it would be preserved in what we call the New Testament, which is a part of the whole Scripture. In other words, they have authority, not in and of themselves, but because they've been designated and appointed by Jesus, authority to give us the very Word of God. They're unique. And this is a limited office. It is no more. Once the New Testament apostles died, their role was done, their office ended, and now we have their record given to them by Christ and the Spirit in the New Testament. So Peter is an apostle, and he's saying as an apostle that his letter here is the Word of God. Now here's a question. How did Peter, a fisherman, become an apostle and actually contribute to the Bible? You say, well, Jesus appointed him. Yes, but there was a process to that as well. Peter was an intelligent human being. Now, he was called in the book of Acts uneducated. He was called common, but that doesn't mean he was unintelligent. My, my grandfather, as best I recall, finished the eighth grade, and that's it. But he worked, and he was highly intelligent, one of the smartest men I know. I always saw him when I was at his house. He would have his newspaper out, and Interestingly, I, I guess I got it from him. He read with a magnifying glass. I guess the newspaper print was too small for him. But he was highly intelligent, and that's the way Peter was. Maybe uneducated, but a, a human being with a, with a brain, intelligence. He worked hard. He had a fishing business. was successful at it. And Christ called him. 
And the Spirit gave Peter the new birth. He was a born-again human being. And he followed Christ. And for three years, he experienced Christ and was taught by Christ. And as I've already said, he was designated as an apostle by Christ. But at the day of Pentecost, after Christ ascended and went into heaven, Christ gave the Holy Spirit, and Peter, along with the others, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he continued to study. The Holy Spirit gave him the new birth and the filling of the Spirit, but he continued to take the Old Testament Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ as the Spirit taught him, and he studied. And he talked with the other apostles. And Peter suffered with Christ. And he suffered as the leader of the church. And he did this for about 30 years. And then at the prompting of the Holy Spirit and inspired by the Holy Spirit, all of this came together and he wrote this letter. That's how a fisherman, intelligent but common, came to write the letter that we now have in the Bible. You can read a lot more about Peter if you want to. That's as far as I'm going to go. But the Gospels are about him. He's in the book of Acts. He's even in the book of Galatians. So read that. That's Peter. That's the first identification. Second, he says he's writing to those who are elect exiles of, and then he gives their regions. Elect exiles. That's a strange way to refer to Christians and to the church. And some have pointed out that the word exile is really not the best English word that could have communicated what Peter's trying to communicate here. Because exile makes us think of some sort of forced relocation. And these people are not being forced to move somewhere that they didn't already live. They're not exiles in that sense. They live in these areas of what then was known as Asia Minor, now we know it as Turkey, and they're listed here. They are citizens. So they're not that kind of an exile. They're citizens of these places. This is their home. The point is that Peter is making is that these people are citizens of a spiritual home while they're living in these locations. This is kind of like what Paul was talking, not kind of, it is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 when he said, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I have a driver's license in the state of Tennessee and my house is located in Davidson County and I am a resident. But I am a citizen of heaven. You are too if you're a Christian. This is what Peter is referring to. So what that means is, is that their home may be here in Asia Minor, now called Turkey, but they are not at home here because they belong to another home. He's referring not here just to a situational location, but to a spiritual condition. They live in these real regions with their home in heaven. So maybe a better word, English word, would be sojourners. 
They've not been forced out of one land into another. They are living at home, but they're sojourning in that home because it's not their real and final home. They belong to another. And we do too. And he says they are elect. They are chosen of God. Now, God chose them from the world or the domain of darkness. When we get to chapter 2 and verse 9, we're going to talk about that. That Christians are people chosen out of a domain, a world of darkness and sin and into the, the kingdom of light of the sun. Chosen from the world, chosen for salvation, for this word sanctification, which we'll talk about for the sprinkling of blood, which is in this passage, for obedience to Christ. God chose a people out of the world and darkness who are still living in it, but not of it, to be for him a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is the identification of the church. Elect exiles, chosen sojourners. And that brings us a great deal of instruction and a great deal of encouragement. We are instructed just by the title, just by the identification. We are instructed to live by the wisdom, by the standard, by the values of another homeland called the kingdom of God. Now, this is going to become very apparent to us. I, I, you know, I'm tempted. I just want to preach the whole thing in one Sunday, and I can't. I was really tempted to go here, but I'm going to back off and say this is going to become very, very apparent to us in the months to come that we live as Christians in this world, sojourners chosen by God, by a whole new wisdom, a different wisdom, a wisdom that is contrary to the wisdom of this world. But it's encouragement too. Because as the, the chosen sojourners in this world, we have the confidence and the hope of our election that we're chosen by God, knowing who we belong to. And belonging to God, we have the confidence that He will never forsake His people, ever. He'll get us all the way to that place that he intends, which is in 1 Peter 5, confirmed and established and strengthened and comforted all to the glory of Christ. So Peter has been identified. The church is identified, the chosen ones of God, the sojourners in this world, belonging here but really there. And then, verse 2, God is identified. Yes, Peter identifies God. And if you've read, if you listen to it closely, something's going on here. This passage has helped the church throughout history develop what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. We sang about it a moment ago. The Trinity is a theological reference to God being one who exists in three persons. Now, I'll tell you that you can find easily online or in a theology book, the Nicene Creed, but also the Athanasian Creed, mostly the Athanasian Creed, which goes through a, a list of explanations of, of how the Trinity 
is, the nature of the Trinity. So you can find that. But notice that Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't give us a systematic theology explaining the nature of the Trinity. He just tells us how it works. He affirms that it is, and he gives us the functions of God, Father, Spirit, and Son carrying out our salvation. And I, I'm, we're grateful that he gives it to us up front because we need to know God's work in our lives and for us on our behalf if we're going to live faithfully as sojourners in this world. Uh, follow along with me. He says <clears throat> in verse 2, we are elect exiles who are first chosen uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Do you see the work of God the Father? There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, the Father who is God, He elects, He chooses according to foreknowledge. What does that mean? It means that God the Father foreknows us. In other words, He knows us before our birth he knows us before our rebirth. He knows that we will be His before our birth and our rebirth because He chose us before our birth and our rebirth. In fact, Ephesians 1 tells us He chose us before the beginning and the foundations of the world. This is the role, the function of God the Father to elect, to choose. Romans 8 adds, to then call and justify and glorify. So why does the church sing praises to God the Father? Because of His gracious choosing of His people to be His. We should be rejoicing in this every single day. This should be the reason that we can say He's with us. His sovereign and beautiful and gracious and loving and merciful choosing and then calling and then justifying and then glorifying of His people. This is the, the work of God our Father in our salvation. And then he goes on. So we are the elect exiles. The first phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. The second phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit, who is God, equally God with God the Father, sanctifies us. And what does that mean? All these big words, and I intend to use every one of them and try to explain them. What does it mean that the Spirit sanctifies us? Well, it refers to his beginning work of the new birth. We call that regeneration. Generate birth, regenerate, bring, it, bring to birth again. The rebirth of the Spirit, regeneration, is part of this work of sanctification. It means he's making us new creatures with a new nature. Did you wake up this morning? feeling like a new creature it depends on what you ate last night right this is a reality John 3 Jesus said you must be born again 
Nicodemus. How can that be? He gets it. We say Nicodemus didn't get it. No, he got it. (laughs) He's saying that can't happen humanly. To which Jesus said, you're right. You got to be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit rebirths us. 2 Corinthians 5. If any man is in Christ, a Christian, any person in Christ, a Christian, he's a new creature. This is the beginning of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. And then it includes the continual, ongoing work of the Spirit to grow us and to conform us into the new creature that he rebirthed us to be. That ought to encourage you. Because you probably did not wake up in the morning and say, I look exactly like I'm supposed to look in Christ today. I am perfect. I am holy. All the fruits of the Spirit are, are, are pounding away 100% in my life. You probably woke up and said, what? But the sanctifying work of the Spirit is to work in you and in me to conform us, to grow us into the new creature that he made us to be. And I take great joy and comfort in knowing that I don't have to be there perfectly right now and that because I'm not there perfectly right now, God has written me off. He has given the Spirit to get us there. But there's more. So he started it. He's conforming us to it. And the sanctification will be complete when we see Christ. John tells us that. He says that when Christ returns, we're going to see him face to face. And the the seeing of Jesus, the beholding of Jesus face to face will have a power. will have a power to finish the conforming work in our own hearts to be like Jesus And I can't wait. And the longer we live, and the more we stumble, and the more we struggle with our flesh, and the more we suffer in this world, and the more frustration that we experience, the more precious the promise that when He appears, we will see Him face to face and we will be like Him. That is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, sanctified, sanctifies, and will sanctify. And then the third phrase is for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, Jesus Christ, who is also God. You see there's God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son listed here. What does He do? God the Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us and rules over us as Lord. He references the sprinkling of his blood. This refers to his death on the cross. His his death on the cross is sprinkled, that means applied to our hearts, making his death for us the basis of our forgiveness. We are forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty for us. The penalty of our sin in his own body, real body, real blood, sprinkled in our hearts, applied to our hearts by faith in him that we 
would be forgiven. It's Old Testament imagery. It was an animal that was sacrificed on an altar, and the blood was sprinkled on the people. It's exactly what God told them to do, so yes, but we also say it was just an animal. It wasn't God the Son, it was an animal. So it was trying to communicate something that would come. It was communicating that God would send a sacrifice who would die for our sins, pay the penalty in his body and blood, that his blood would be applied, sprinkled to our lives through faith, and that we would be forgiven. All that Old Testament stuff was communicating. And then Jesus comes, and everything communicated is now here in Christ. And the sprinkling of his blood here can also refer to that ongoing cleansing of the forgiven Christian who sins while walking with Christ in this world. Because he's going to call us to obedience to Christ, and we know that our obedience to Christ is not perfect. So what do we do? Do we give up? Do we live in condemnation? No, we are, we are saved for the sprinkling of his blood, the ongoing forgiveness that comes to us because Christ has died for our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter himself had his feet washed by Jesus. And Jesus said, he said, no, Jesus, you can't do that. And Jesus said, you better let me wash your feet or I'm not, you're not going to have any part of me. And he said, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus said, time out, Peter, you're missing it. You're, you, you've already bathed, I've already cleansed you, you've already forgiven your mind, I'm showing you that now you must have your feet washed because you're going to walk in this world, you're going to stumble, you're going to sin, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to cleanse you. That's what this sprinkling of blood is about. This is what the Son has worked on our behalf. So we just stop there to say, just, just going to say it, brothers and sisters, friends, I know. I know that you sin. I sin. If any person says he doesn't have any sin, John says he's lying. We sin. Now what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to get up and try harder. All right, try. Well, I'm going to stay home from church until I can stop sinning for at least three months. Three months is my, three months is my standard. If I can get to three months, I'll, I'll be good. I'll, I, can, I can show up again. Okay, good luck with that too. What are you going to do? I'm just going to quit altogether. I mean, isn't it true that Christianity is not true if Christians sin? Absolutely not. It's true. Christianity is true because Christians sin. Christianity is true because we all sin. What are you going to do with that? You're going to put yourself before Christ. And you're going to receive that sprinkling of his blood over you again and again and again and again. Not becoming a Christian again and again and again. A Christian born again who's growing into the new creature that he's made you to be. A Christian cleansed by the blood of Christ who's claiming that blood of Christ as they struggle through this world as sojourners. That's what we're going to do. That's why we're going to keep showing up. Where am I in this text? Oh, obedience to Christ. Refers to the lordship. of We're saved by the Lord, to, to, to obedience to Christ, which means the lordship of Christ, God the Son. We are we're being identified here. We are the elect, foreknown, sanctified, cleansed to obey Christ as Lord, people of God. 
Why? Why does people pack all this wonderful teaching about God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and all this wonderful teaching about salvation? He's mentioned election, foreknowledge, sanctification, the cleansing of our sins, obedience to Christ, our identity as sojourners in this world. Why does, does the Apostle Peter cram all of this into a greeting? Why not just, hey guys, it's Peter. Because if we're going to live in this world as sojourners, which means this is home, but not really. It's temporary. We're living, we're, we're citizens of another home. If we're going to live in this world as sojourners, with all of the tensions, the tensions that are going to come to us by, for, because we live in this world by the wisdom of that world. That's tension. If we're going to do that, we must have these truths settled in our brains, fixed in our hearts, steadfast in them to encourage us. We have to know who we are in Christ. We have to know who God is. If we're going to live in the tensions of this world because we're belonging to another, but the wisdom of God in this world, we have to know that God our Father knows us. We have to know that He knows where we live. These people lived in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Just open up the little map section of your Bible and you'll see them up there in the northern part of what we call Turkey. Just look through there. They lived there. God knew where they lived. He did not forget them. He did not take his eye off of them. He knew them because he foreknew them. He knew the tensions that were created by their obedience to Christ. I opened up my app this morning and read about Sri Lanka. Believers in Sri Lanka, pressure. They're being pressured. They're a minority. Other majority religions or people from those religions are pressuring them to stop preaching the gospel. They might lose their jobs. It might be governmental. They're living under pressure. God knows this. He foreknew them. How could he not know now? He knows the pressure you're living under. This is a pressure world. You say, why is there so much pressure in the Christian life? Because God called you to live by his wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. And that's going to put pressure on your life and tension. God has not forgotten about us. We have to know this. If he foreknew us, he won't forget us. He has a plan for us. What is his plan for us? I shouldn't do this because I'm running out of time, but go ahead and flip to chapter 5. This is his plan. Verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, there's the pressure, there's the tension. If you think there's tension in your life and you think, man, I must be doing something wrong. Living as a Christian is full of tension. I'm doing something wrong. No, you're doing something wrong if you're living as a Christian and you have no tension. Tension is what it means to obey Christ. After you've suffered the tension a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's his plan for you. He's going to get that done. Peter says so much more about our Heavenly Father and what we need to know about Him if we're going to be faithful sojourners in this world. And God the Spirit. We need to know that now as sojourners. He's made us new. He's made us, given us new natures. 
As we've already said, he's making us into, he's growing us into that new nature and he will complete it someday. So the suffering and the tension and the difficulty of this life is no threat to the work of the Spirit to get us to be like Christ. In fact, here's the message of Peter. Okay, it's contrary to what we think. We think, oh, I'm struggling so much. There's so much tension. I must be doing something wrong. Oh, this is so difficult. Maybe God's not gonna be able to get it done. No, this is what Peter says. Peter says that we actually must suffer. That we must experience the tension. Because that's the way that God is going to conform us to the image of his son and get us all the way to glory. We must suffer to share in his glory. That means the spirit must work in us, and he does. Be encouraged by that. And why does he pack the message of Christ's cleansing into this greeting for us at the very beginning of his letter? Because he is saying to us, as you walk in obedience, which is a major theme in Peter, as you walk in obedience, you will need to know every step of the way that you are indeed forgiven. You are forgiven, and he will forgive you and continue to forgive you all the way home as he works for discipline and conformity to Christ in your life. This is why. Become a Christian. I've talked a lot and it may have stirred in your mind, how do I know? How do I know if God knows me? How do I know if I belong to God? How do I know if, I can, if I'm a new person, if I can be a new person, if the Spirit can give me the new birth? How do I know this? How do I know that I'm cleansed? How do I know that I'm forgiven? Well, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible that you are told to figure out whether God foreknew you or whether the spirit rebirthed you or whether Christ forgave you you're never told to figure that out do you know what the Bible tells you to do it tells you to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and when you do when you do you will know you will know that he foreknew you you will know that the spirit rebirthed you you will know that Christ cleanses you that's the way you know. You don't know by figuring it out. You know by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. So take the whole weight of yourself, your future, your eternity, the whole weight of who you are, and throw it right on Jesus and say, I trust you, Jesus, with my life and my future and my sin in my sanctification, I trust you, all on you, and then you can know. And you'll read these verses completely differently when you do that. Trust Christ. Christian, be mindful of these things. Be encouraged. Be faithful. I had two more points. I think I'll stop. See what happens next week. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and your 
kindness. And we're praying now as we begin, as we begin this book, this letter. You were so gracious to us, Lord, when we worked our way through the Gospel of John. Such a beautiful revival in our lives by focusing on Jesus. And Lord, now we want to focus on him and we want to hear about him and about the love of the Father and about the work of the Spirit in this letter. And so we're asking at the beginning and believing that it will be that you would revive us as we collectively as a congregation meditate on these beautiful words and and take heed to them and receive the challenge and repent where we need to repent and, and place our faith in Christ and entrust our souls to you. So work among us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.